Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a show about the green economy in Canada, the politics, the policy, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. It's a busy intersection. This podcast brings the foot traffic into the studio and connects it to your earbuds for insights you won't hear anywhere else. We do it every two weeks and serve it up in 25 minutes or less. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, Canada's Conservatives and Climate Change. Three Conservative strategists, Melissa Lantzman, Mitch Davidson, and Ken Bosenkuhl, tell me how Conservatives can fix a sometimes awkward relationship with the climate issue. Then, fossil fuel subsidies. Why do governments say one thing and then spend their money on another? A new report from IISD scores Canada and its G20 peers on their commitment to eliminate public monies going toward oil, gas, and coal support. On top of that, we'll get a 60-second summary of a new report on the economics of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and we'll get a rundown from my colleague Mike Moffat about what else is happening in the clean economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Conservatives in Canada have had a mixed relationship with climate change, It's ranged from Prime Minister Brian Mulroney leading the first-ever International Climate Conference back in 1988, to Prime Minister Stephen Harper scrapping climate programs and withdrawing Canada from the Kyoto Protocol in 2011. It's ranged from former Reform Party leader Preston Manning championing a carbon tax to reduce climate emissions, to federal Conservative leader Andrew Scheer mounting a so-called resistance against a federal carbon tax. It's been a mixed bag at the provincial level, too, punctuated recently by what's considered a strong conservative plan in Manitoba, at the same time as the weakening of climate regulations by conservative governments in Ontario and Alberta. Yet climate change has skyrocketed as a concern for Canadians, and my next three guests believe there is an opening for a strong conservative climate agenda. So, can Canada's conservatives reclaim the climate issue? Can they win on climate change? And what does an ambitious but conservative climate agenda look like? To shed some light on that, I'm speaking with three former conservative strategists. First, I'm welcoming Mitch Davidson. Mitch is the executive director of Strategy Corp Institute. He is former executive director of policy to Ontario Premier Doug Ford. He also wrote the platform for former Ontario conservative leader Patrick Brown. Mitch, welcome to the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Mitch, how important is it for Canadian Conservative parties to have a strong climate agenda, in your view? It's certainly important to have something of substance, right? So um, the first thing I would say is, you know, I was I was speaking actually with a staffer who used to work for Andrew Scheer, and, and he said uh, a funny line to me. He's like, you know, Justin Trudeau's climate plan was six pages and ours was 72 pages. Um, we had a plan, <laughs> right? But, but um, you know, the the prevailing narrative was that the Conservative Party last federal election did not have a, a real plan on climate. Mm-hmm. And so so I think, you know, when you when you look at what makes a strong climate agenda, it needs to be substantive, right? It, it's, it's not just about um, throwing some dollars around or putting the right buzzwords. There needs to be some some practical and some real policies that people can wrap their heads around and that that have impact on emissions or or have impact on climate change. Mitch, I want to get your take on conservative performance uh, on climate change so far. 
It's been a few years since there was a conservative party at the federal level, but there's lots of conservatives in charge at the provincial level over the past few years. Are, are there some lessons there? Are there some, some best practices there when it comes to climate change in terms of policy and, and politics? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think where we're seeing, um, you know, obviously the strongest advocate for pro-climate policy was Brian Pallister in Manitoba, right? right? In terms of someone who who full-on endorsed the idea um, of a revenue-neutral carbon price. So in terms, of, in terms of someone who really went for it, I mean, that's the one you've got to point to. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is, is the provincial leaders, especially the conservative provincial leaders, have done a really interesting and delicate job of weaving action on climate change with jurisdictional independence and anti-taxation, right? And it's like, that's that's a line that not a lot of people can walk. And frankly, I don't want to walk on a daily basis. It's right. tough to do. And, you know, so Doug Ford has uh, created a emissions uh, reduction policy for businesses and at the same time stood up for consumers and his own jurisdictional um, authority but yet that first part is is a, it's a key part of a carbon tax right like i mean it, it, an output an output based allocation system is by definition half of the carbon tax equation the other yeah. half is consumers so mm-hmm. so you can't i i think it would be completely disingenuous to stand up there and say Doug Ford's doing nothing for the environment at the same time that you couldn't stand up there and say Doug Ford's not standing up for taxpayers or Doug Ford's not standing up for for provincial rights what what goes in Aaron O'Toole's climate plan I think what Aaron O'Toole needs to do is, you know, you've got provincial leaders across the country. And right now, a bunch of them happen to be conservative. I think there's something like seven conservative premiers or something mm-hmm. like that. And a lot of them have majority governments as well. Um, they all want to do something on climate change. They just don't want to be told what to do. They don't want it imposed on them. And I actually just think the first step in that conversation is sitting down with the provincial leaders in each province together and working it out because we're not talking about absolute terms. Like this doesn't have to be 100 is a carbon tax and zero is absolutely nothing. All of these provincial leaders have suggested that they want something in between. So let's let's figure out what that is. And it's likely a form of output-based allocation on business uh, you know, it's it's likely made in provincial jurisdiction plans to accommodate their individual situations. And so it's a lot of work to create 10 different climate change plans. Um, but perhaps that's the way forward is, is provincially recognized climate change plans rather than a federally imposed one. Mitch, that's all extremely fascinating. I wish we had more time to chat right now, um, but I know you've got another commitment. So thanks for joining the show. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I now want to loop in Ken Bosenkuhl. Ken's been part of conservative policy circles for a long time. He's been chief of staff to a BC premier, a senior policy advisor to three national conservative leaders, two Alberta finance ministers, and an Ontario progressive conservative leader. He's now a professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Ken, thanks for joining. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Ken, You've been a longtime supporter of using a carbon tax to reduce climate emissions. Where do you think that tool fits now in the conservative playbook? I believe that a carbon tax is not only the right policy to reduce carbon, but it should be the only policy to reduce carbon. Hmm. 
And so the idea that we have, and, I, and this is where this is where I really believe conservatives can differentiate differentiate themselves. I believe that if we had a carbon price at the right level, and it's that's higher than it is today, which would produce a lot of revenue to cut taxes and do family friendly policy. But I think a higher carbon price means we don't need electric vehicle vehicle subsidies, which means we don't need a lot of the harmful regulations that we have. It means we don't need to spend money on a lot of things that we're spending money on right now for green policy. We can take a lot of the green policy that's out there by the federal and provincial governments and throw it in the dumpster. And guess what we can do with the resulting revenue? We can cut taxes. We can do things conservatives want to do. But I think conservatives should be willing to say, if we bring in a carbon tax at the right level, we can get rid of all of this harmful, intrusive, big government programming. So a carbon tax only policy That would be a significant reversal from what the federal conservatives proposed in the last election, which was essentially a promise to eliminate the carbon tax. How do you think conservatives sell that politically? If conservatives think less about uh, about the about the increase in tax on carbon and more about what they can do with the resulting revenues, I think they'll be in a better place. Um, one of the reasons that conservatives have fought carbon prices and one of the ways ways in which they have fought it is and I think this was a correct assumption. They say our opponents are going to tax you more and then spend that money. So net, it's going to be an increase in taxes. And in places like British Columbia with the with the NDP and to some extent Alberta, although they had low income rebates, a lot of the money collected by our, our, our opponents is being used to spend money on government. And I think if we reframe that debate and say, no, 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 if we collect carbon prices, we're going to rebate it all back to you and we're going to do it by cutting taxes, being more family friendly, being more friendly to, to rural versus urban, then I think, I think that it changes the frame of the debate. I did a calculation some years ago that may or may not have happened during a leadership race for the Alberta Conservative Party and may or, not, or may not have been provided to one of the candidates. And I did a calculation that said if Alberta had a $60 carbon price – and you have to, for the sake of this argument, you have to assume that the Americans also have a carbon price. And if Biden's president, I think it's reasonable to assume they're going to move in that direction. That if we, if $60 carbon price in Alberta means no personal income tax, right? So a $60, everyone's like, oh, $30, that's terrible. But a $60 carbon price without the offset base allocations and putting some caveats around there, a $60 carbon price, assuming the globe has a, has a, has a, also has carbon pricing, mm -hmm. means we don't need income taxes in Alberta. And that's the conversation I want to have with conservatives. It's like I said to one of the leadership candidates, you could campaign on getting rid of personal income tax in Alberta by having a $60 carbon price. But the lead part of your campaign is, I'm campaigning on no personal income tax. That's pretty exciting if you're a conservative. And Ken, does the kind of climate plan you're talking about, one that is big on carbon tax, does it get us to the Paris targets? All political parties in Canada, all credible political parties in Canada have committed to the Paris targets. The problem conservatives have now is they say, we're going to meet Paris, but we're going to do it with bigger government and more intrusive government. Like we're literally the party campaigning on the least conservative option available to reduce emissions. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to be a conservative and to see your national parties running on bigger government and more regulation as opposed to market-based measures to cut emissions. But I think on this one, conservatives can truly have a good economic policy, a good conservative policy, and a good political policy. And I, I, I'm hoping to spend the next year or two uh, pushing, nudging, yelling, screaming at my political party to get them to move in the right direction. Ken, thanks again for your time today.
That's my pleasure. Anytime. That's Ken Bosenkuhl, conservative insider and now professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Now, to provide some additional insights on the politics of all of this, I'm welcoming Melissa Lansman. Melissa is the vice president at Enterprise Canada, a strategic communications firm. She joined Enterprise after several years running election campaigns, including for Doug Ford and Stephen Harper. Thanks for joining, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Melissa, how important do you think it is for conservatives to have a strong climate agenda? Look, I think it's important to understand that in order to form government for the Conservatives, they'll need to present a credible plan. And for Conservatives, I think that bar is higher. I would say unfairly so, but as a matter both as substantive policy and on uh, on messaging. Hmm. And part of this is that I actually think that they need to straddle a really cautious middle ground where they can broaden their voter coalition to modern urban voters, something that they had lost out in federally in the last election, and the very real concerns of economic growth uh, for those who might feel threatened by the imposing sort of too much, too fast agenda from Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Why you say you think the, the bar is set higher for conservatives? Why do you think that is? So, look, I, I think, first off, politically, they'll, they'll need to boast, bolster their credibility, which is in a deficit on, uh, on, the environment, uh, on the environment generally. And I think, you know, not necessarily by just adopting what I would call sort of the woke language of activists who, in the course of their singular focus, alienate some of the traditional voter base of the Conservative Party. This is kind of always at the root of uh, the political issue, because at the end of the day, conservatives, like all Canadians, want to see a commitment to conservation, clean water, protecting wildlife, you know, and, and generally sustainable future. But why I say that it's you know, unfairly so that the conservative bar is higher is because of that confidence deficit of maybe leaving out a substantive environment plan uh, in, in, in the in the last number of, uh, of elections. Now, uh, we've been talking about what should be in a conservative climate agenda and, and your colleagues uh, from times past, uh, Mitch uh, Davidson and Ken Bosenkuhl, have, have told me that it should revolve around uh, two things. A, a carbon tax uh, came up a lot as a conservative tool for fighting climate change and also this focus on, on respect for provincial jurisdiction and leadership. Do you agree with with those two ingredients? Um, and so, are there any other ingredients you'd add? Yeah, well, I'll start. I'll start here. I think carbon pricing, uh, in in any of the ways that it's presented, has some serious political challenges. And I'll talk to you a little bit about the politics of this, because making a convincing case that the public should support what is often simplistically framed as you know immediate pocketbook pain to benefit you know, something that, you know, future generations, or frankly, they may never see, that's not an easy sell. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is a challenge for the conservatives is that they're very much framed as pro-growth, pro-energy, anti-tax. And I think the the liberals have found themselves in a frame uh, where many would see them as, I wouldn't go as far as saying anti-growth, but certainly not uh, you know, not not pro-growth in the same way. I think pro-tax and traditionally and now more so anti-energy. So a carbon tax blurs the distinction between those two narratives. And politically, it doesn't line up for the traditional voter coalition, not because it's bad policy, 
but because it's been so simplistically framed and poorly communicated that we're in we're we're talking about a carbon tax as something of an economic policy rather than one that substantively fixes the issue of uh, of climate change. Now, you did ask me, you know, whether there's something that I would add to a carbon tax, and without diving into to policy, I think that there are lots of things that the conservatives, you know, could talk about more clearly, uh, and frankly, everybody talked about more clearly, and that's things like competitive tax structures, um, investments in things like infrastructure and human capital. But at the core of it, it's not having the government pick winners, and it's not having this policy come out of you know, the, the bowels of the bureaucracy in Ottawa and really have industry be a, a, a driver of that. That's something that conservatives can slowly get behind. Melissa, we'll leave it there. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Uh, thanks for taking the time out to speak with me. Thanks very much. That's Melissa Lantzman, Vice President of Enterprise Canada and former Conservative Campaign Director. Well, there you have it. Three Conservative takes on how Conservatives can reclaim the climate issue. For more opinions from Conservative thinkers, including from Brian Mulroney and Preston Manning, check out the website for this episode where we've curated some additional materials. That's at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, we know that Canada and countries around the world are committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and you might think that a good starting point for achieving that would be for governments to stop giving free money to their domestic fossil fuel industries. That's what Canada and its peers in the G20 countries did in 2009. They committed to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. In 2016, the Trudeau government reiterated that commitment and set a target of 2025 for phasing out these kinds of subsidies. So, how is Canada doing, and how are its peers in the G20 doing? That's the focus of a report released yesterday by the International Institute for Sustainable Development. To give us the lowdown on this new report, I'm welcoming Vanessa Corkle. Vanessa is a policy analyst at the International Institute for Sustainable Development and one of the report's co-authors. Thanks for joining, Vanessa. Thanks for having me, Eric. Vanessa, what are the different ways that governments support and subsidize the fossil fuel industry? So typically when we think about subsidies for fossil fuels, people tend to think mostly about direct money given to fossil fuel companies. But actually, it's much broader than that. Uh, And it includes money given to producers, but it's also money given to consumers. So in this report, we kind of break it down into five different categories. Um, And it's exciting because it's the first time that we've really looked at all of these categories for all of the G20 countries. So it includes um, money that's given directly through budget transfers, but also foregone revenue. So that's money that government doesn't collect on uh, taxes and royalties. Um, It could also be price support. So that's providing below market prices for consumers of fossil fuels. Uh, It might be public finance, so money given through loans and guarantees through state institutions like Export Development Canada, or it could be state-owned enterprise investments where government invests in fossil fuel projects through its state-owned enterprise. And then now with COVID, we're seeing a fifth category emerge, which is public money commitments that are really happening um, because of the pandemic that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. And that could be a different category or it might fall into one of the above. Your report finds that Canada isn't doing too well in this respect. Can you break down Canada's performance on on uh, on this kind of uh, these kinds of subsidies and support for the fossil fuel industry? 
it's a bit depressing because our report finds that Canada has actually ranked last um, amongst OECD countries in its progress in ending support for fossil fuels. Uh, put that at the bottom of the pack um, at 11 out of 11 OECD countries that we looked at. And, you know, we did a report on, on Canada's subsidies last year and we found that there was 600, at least 600 million um, in 2019 that was provided to support consumption and production of fossil fuels. Interesting. Can you give us a quick feel for how others are doing with respect to the the commitment to eliminate fossil fuels? Yeah. So I wish that there was some country to point to in the report that was really leading the pack that we could point to and say, hey, this country is doing really well. Everyone should just do what that country is doing. But the unfortunate reality is that every country that we looked at is at risk of not delivering on their phase-out commitment to phase-out fossil fuel subsidies as part of the G20. Um, you know, overall, we found that G20 governments are providing over $584 billion U.S. billion uh, per year for fossil fuels at home and abroad. Vanessa, really appreciate you sharing um, some of the findings of your new report, and congratulations on getting it out. Thanks. Hope that worked well. That's Vanessa Corkle from IISD giving us an inside look into the new report, Doubling Back and Doubling Down, G20 Scorecard on Fossil Fuel Funding. For links to the snapshot of that scorecard or to the full report, visit our webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now that is a very good segue into our next segment. It's called the 60-second report. We do it every week, and it's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in, you guessed it, 60 seconds or less. This week, we've invited David Hughes. He's the author of a new report released by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. It got covered by the CBC and other major news outlets last week. It's called Reassessment of the Need for the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. David, your minute starts now. The report is based on the latest Canadian energy regulator forecast of oil production. Three other production forecasts were also included. The report finds that the announced optimizations and expansions on five existing pipelines, plus the completion of Enbridge's Line 3 project in 2021, will provide sufficient pipeline-only capacity through 2040, assuming the Alberta government's legislated 100 megaton per year oil sands emissions cap is enforced. The report finds that the government's claim that Canadian oil will sell at a higher price in Asia is false. The price of heavy sour crude oil comparable to Canada's Western Canadian Select benchmark has sold at an average 4.27 per barrel discount in Asia compared to the U.S. over the past seven years. The report finds that transport costs are also two to seven dollars per barrel higher to Asia than to the U.S. Midwest or Gulf Coast. Adding these losses together means that Canadian producers will lose at least four to six dollars per barrel selling to Asia compared to U.S. markets. The Canadian Energy Regulator production forecast used in the report will also result in emissions from the oil and gas sector alone, exceeding an 80% emissions reduction target by 2050 for Canada. This means Canada must reduce oil and gas production to meet emissions reduction targets, which will result in even more excess pipeline capacity. There you go, a review of the economics of the Trans Mountain Project in, well, just over a minute. Now, the intersection of the environment and the economy is a big intersection, and there's just too much happening every week for us to cover it all in depth. To help with that, my colleague Mike Moffat makes a list of five other things happening in the clean economy this week. Mike, what's on your list this week? 
Here's the other five things I'm watching this week. Number one, Japan's new prime minister announced that they will be carbon neutral by 2050, pledging to sharply accelerate the country's global warming targets, even as it plans to build more than a dozen new coal burning power plants. The announcement comes after China said it would reduce its net carbon emissions to zero by 2060. Number two, a new U.S. monthly green jobs report shows that six months into the pandemic, greener enterprises align with more resilient jobs, higher pay for workers, fewer job losses, and the potential for a better overall company and investor portfolio performance. Number three, Natural Resource Minister Seamus O'Regan unveiled rules for the $750 million emission reduction fund first announced at the end of April. Oil and gas companies that use federal funds to help cut methane emissions won't have to repay in full if they wholly eliminate their project's emissions. Number four, Alberta unveiled a suite of greenhouse gas emission reductions programs to provide economic stimulus and reduce emissions across industries from oil and gas to forestry to agriculture. $280 million in federal and provincial funds will go to the programs, which will be overseen by Emissions Reductions Alberta, an agency that uses carbon tax proceeds from large emitters to fund GHG reduction projects. Number five, New Brunswick Power's Total Home Energy Savings Program has seen a surge of interest that NB Power says is probably linked to the boom in home renovations that's been triggered by the pandemic. About 700 homeowners have been signing up per month since the program restarted in June. I'm Mike Moffat, and those were the five other things I was watching this week. That's it for today's show. Remember, you can listen to all the shows, or up to three now, on the podcast website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. The next episode is out November 25th. I hope you'll tune in again. Till then.